Hello, my loves, and welcome to the Sensitive Collective Podcast. I am your host and healing mentor, Laura Ann, and I created Sensitive Collective to be a space where empaths and sensitives can come and receive guidance, love, and support on their own healing and empowerment journey. Whether with just me or one of my guests, we show up in vulnerability to share our own stories and insights with the intention of creating a network of support for you, dear listener. Because feeling all the feels, healing from past trauma, old patterns, and learning how to navigate and fully step into your sensitivity superpowers can feel confusing and sometimes, honestly, super lonely. But you are not alone. There are more of us empaths and sensitives waking up to our nature every single day. And the work you're doing to heal yourself and claim your power is the work that will transform both you and the entire world. And it's why we're here. So join me on this sacred journey of self-discovery, self-love, and self-healing. We'll laugh, we'll cry, and we'll do it all together. I'm so happy you're here. Enjoy. Welcome, my love, to the Sensitive Collective Podcast. I am your host and healing mentor, Laura Ann. My apologies today. I'm a little congested. Allergies are still sticking around here in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, But I'm coming off of a really incredible holiday weekend spent with family, celebrating my mama's birthday, and um, just absolutely gorgeous weather. I also had the opportunity to see one of my most favorite musical artists, Emily King, at the Orange Peel here in Asheville. And it was like a spiritual experience. I I think it's one of the things I really love the most about being an empath and HSP is the energetic and emotional high that we get that we receive in a crowd like that and when it's cultivated by someone like Emily King who is just a beautiful soul her lyrics are so soulful and they just touch your heart and and uh, she knows how to stoke the fire of the crowd and ride the waves of those emotions and she's a truly gifted performer and, and to, to cultivate that um, as sort of our, our leader on stage and to be in, in the audience with that, with music that has seen me through uh, some really dark times and that has seen me dancing in my living room, celebrating some of the best of times, um, that it's, it's one of the great gifts that I'm just so grateful to have as someone who is so sensitive and I know that in this show, I tend to talk a lot about uh, creative problem solving and some of the more challenging and shadow aspects of being an empath and highly sensitive person, because that's where we need the most support, is <laughs> the places that feel, feel like they can be um, really challenging and can feel like a struggle. Um, but there's so many incredible aspects of this gift that we have, and I, I really enjoyed reveling in that um, aspect of myself over, over the course of the weekend. And uh, my cousin, who is also a, a highly sensitive person, we were, 
went to the show together and were, were reveling in, in our sensitivity together that it, um, it really makes it extra, extra special. Um, and it's one of the things we love about really carefully choosing where we go in those sort of more crowded, highly stimulating <laughs> situations. And it just serves as a reminder to me and to y'all, if, if you needed it, that, um, you know, being a, being a sensitive, it doesn't mean you have to be a hermit, right? <laughs> we get to make empowered choices about how we're overstimulated. And it doesn't always mean it's a bad thing. And um, it's, it's more about the awareness and the acceptance that that is a part of who we are, and and then making really intentional and empowered choices uh, around how best to um, to support ourselves and to lean into the gift that sensitivity really can be. So I wanted to start the episode with that share because I'm still honestly I'm kind of riding the waves of the high of that experience. It was just one of the most incredible shows I've ever been to, and I've seen a lot of music. This is coming from a girl who lived in Austin, Texas for 12 years and went to South by Southwest um, pretty much every year that I was there. And, um, you know, as as empaths and sensitives, we we tend to really be deeply, deeply moved by art and by music. And um, and so a reminder, too, on, on the flip side if you are having a hard time, um, if some, you know, I'll, I'll take a personal example on some of the days where I'm really struggling, if I if I make it an intentional choice, and sometimes I I can't get out of it enough to see and like make the decision to do this, but very often now I can, and I have specific playlists that are tailored to create an energetic and emotional response. So that's. That's a pro tip for you. Um, you can utilize music to get you into a certain emotional and energetic state. So to do this, I'll just think about the emotional energetic state that I'm aiming for and feel into the songs that I, that I know and love that are going to help me get into that place. Um, and then I can play around. I like to use Spotify, but you know there, there are other platforms and um, you know create that, that playlist. And then I have that. And so I know, um, you know, when I'm feeling some kind of way, I can just go in and press play and the music actually is so therapeutic and the frequency helps me to shift my own frequency and the, you know, the interaction that I have with the music at that, that really deep level actually changes my, my own energetic and emotional state. So Take it if that works for you. Leave it if it doesn't. Um, and now let's let's get into the the juicy juiciness that is reparenting, which is what we're talking about today. Um, reparenting your sensitive self, and <clears throat> I've decided to um, you know just help with the definition of sensitive um, at the start of each of these episodes, just as a little reminder. I'm, I'm using the word sensitive to speak to both empaths and highly sensitive people. And most empaths are highly sensitive people. Um, you know, we, uh, we, it's, uh, Elizabeth, um, Judith or, uh, Orloff, gosh, I can never remember how to pronounce her name. Uh, she wrote the empath survival guide to, th- uh, the empaths 
survival guide. Um, and she talks about the spectrum of empathy, which I find to be a really helpful tool for understanding the differences between empaths and highly sensitive people. When you think about empathy on a spectrum, empaths are like the most extreme uh, on that, that scale of empathy. And at the complete opposite end of that, you have narcissists, right? You have an empathy deficit kind of disorder. Um, and so highly sensitive people are kind of right underneath uh, empaths in terms of sensitivity because they tend to not absorb the emotional energy to the extent that empaths do um, and aren't you know necessarily going to have uh, some of the spiritual inclination like the spiritual gifts the ability to um, energetically communicate with plants and animals or that's sort of that next level but the experiences that highly sensitive people have, um, empaths have as well in terms of being more easily overstimulated and over aroused. So I work with both. I work with highly sensitive people and empaths. I myself am both. Um, and so just for the sake of um, conversation and, and ease of, of labeling, uh, when, when I made the sensitive collective, the, the term sensitive, I'm, I'm referring to all of y'all, right? And so when I say the word sensitive in this episode, know that I'm speaking both to empaths and highly sensitive people. So when we're thinking about reparenting your sensitive self, um, it really, it, it reparenting is at its core, it's really, it's reprogramming. There's so much of the way that we are programmed the stories that we tell and accept ourselves about ourselves and the world, our beliefs about ourselves and the world, they're all formed in childhood. So the first seven years of our lives, we are literally in a hypnotic state. The first seven years of our lives, we are literally in a hypnotic state. Our brain waves as kids are theta brainwaves. As Bruce Lipton, who is an American developmental biologist, um, who is uh, really well known for his views on um, and beliefs around epigenetics, as Bruce Lipton explains, theta is imagination. And there's a really cool YouTube video. Um, if you like Googled Bruce Lipton, or maybe I'll just link it in the show notes. Um, where he talks about this, and I think it's like the biology of belief, um, but he's he's great, and, and he, he lays it out really well there. And the example that he loves to give, and I've seen him give it in this video and in other places, is you know when a child is playing pretend, and let's say they're pretending and imagining that the broom is a horse, and sort of that classic, like, you know, you're straddling the broom and you're galloping around and making horse noises. And you ask the child for the broom back and they say, I don't know what you're talking about. This is a horse. Because to them, in their imagination state of theta, the broom is actually a horse. Theta, those brain waves, T-H-E-T-A, theta brain waves are also the brain waves of hypnosis. 
And before you can become really conscious, if you don't have any programming, this is what Bruce Lipton speaks to, what are you becoming conscious of? Right? You actually need to have the programming first. And, and the way that we're programmed, you know, nature, biology, uses the first seven years to program children with whatever the programs are that we require in order to live on this planet via hypnosis. We just watch. That's how we download it. That's how we download our programming as kids. We, um, we watch and we experiment. We witness our family and our community and, and are literally downloading it via this theta brainwave hypnotic state. And after those first seven years, 95% of our life originates, comes from, is driven by those programs that were downloaded into our subconscious. And that's why it is so, so powerful to look back and really gain a deeper understanding of the why behind our programming so that we can start to shift it, so that we can reprogram it. And psychologists tend to uh, call this technique reframing. I have, have called it flipping the script um, because the beliefs that we have about ourselves, the story that we tell ourselves over and over in our, in our subconscious or even our own inner dialogue, they really are like a script. Uh, they really are like a script and scripts can be rewritten. And I love that image of, and, and you know, it's, it's kind of a the meme that's out there, right? It's like, you know, you were the author of your own story. And this, um, this work of flipping the script can be a part of our work with all different facets of ourself, like our inner child, like our inner critic. And specifically when working with your inner child, flipping the script is a big part of what reparenting is and what the the work of reparenting looks like so sensitive children are being programmed just like all children but with even more high attunement to subtlety than other kiddos because we're sensitive and this includes all of the things that we're picking up about what being sensitive really signifies in our family in our community and in our culture And in turn, that programming then dictates how we're showing up for ourselves and for others. There's so much nuance here. So we can't just, I mean, it's tempting, but making just sweeping broad generalizations, as tempting as it is, you know, we need to remember like there, there are many, many layers and it's very, very nuanced. Just looking at gender and societal, um, understanding of, of what gender is and, and gender roles um, because of the way our culture views gender the stories that sensitive kids who are identified as boys the stories that they internalize are very different from the stories internalized by those sensitive kids who are identified in in our culture as girls So that being said, (laughs) disclaimer, no, 
crazy huge broad generalizations, there are still a number of commonalities in the experiences of children, um, of sensitive children that we have with one another. Um, you know, we, we were, we are different than the majority of people. You know, sensitives are a minority in the population. Um, Dr. Elaine Aaron hypothesizes, you know, based on her research, that specifically highly sensitive people are in a range of, you know, 15 to 20% of the population. Uh, a lot of, of HSPs are also empaths, and, um, you know, there's probably, so, so that's a, a safe, so we can say around 20% of people are sensitive. Um, and depending on the specific nuances of your own reality as a child, this, this difference could have shown up in a lot of varied ways. But once we enter into school, side by side with our peers who aren't sensitive, that other 80%, the, the differences and the varied ways are much more obvious and the environment of school in and of itself is very overwhelming for sensitive children. So when I was little Laura Ann, five years old, um, my parents and I, we moved to England. And I was in grade school, also known as primary school, across the pond. And at first I went to state school, which is the equivalent of public school here in the States. And the, the teacher at the state school, um, this I, I, the only reason I know any of this is because I asked my mom uh, to, to share some stories from my childhood about that, where she was like, looking back, were there any telltale signs that I was a, a sensitive kid? Um, and, and this was top of mind for her. And what she was telling me was that the teacher in the state school was a brand new teacher, just like straight out of school herself, with a huge class of 35 first graders that she was solely responsible for all on her own. And after, and this is, you know, I had just moved across the Atlantic Ocean. I'm in a completely different country. Nobody else talks like me. Um, you know, sensitives change can be really challenging for us. And, um, you know, I was in, in this uh, really, really overstimulating environment. And so several weeks in, at the first parent-teacher meeting, the teacher started the meeting with my parents saying, now I know Laura isn't stupid. <laughs> my mom to tell the story, she's like, and at that point, I was only really half listening because of course you weren't stupid. We, we knew that you were actually really intelligent. Um, and you know, so I was, I was already starting to doubt and question and I wasn't fully present and listening to, to the rest of what the teacher said. Um, but yeah, so the teacher said, now I know Laura isn't stupid, but she's spending a lot of time daydreaming and is having trouble focusing in class. And so again, my parents were mortified by her poor delivery, also by her lack of solutions, like, you know, proposed actions on, on what to do about this. And so they made the decision to put me into private school, which of course had smaller class sizes and a lot more one-on-one -on -one attention from very experienced teachers. And I flourished in the private school. Um, again, I was not stupid, uh, which I just, it's, it's funny. It's like, oh, how times have changed. 
um, you know, the eighties compared to now. Uh, but I, I, and I excelled in school, especially within creative subjects. And now, of course, we know the big whys behind that behavior of, of daydreaming and, and difficulty focusing, um, that what the teacher was witnessing in that behavior, um, the underlying cause of that was that I am a, a sensitive and I have ADHD. Also, side note, you should know it's very common for folks who have ADHD to also be highly sensitive people. And that's also why smaller classes made such a difference for me, right? More structured guidance supported my ADHD. The smaller classes were much less overwhelming. And overall, it really soothed my um, tendency to be over-aroused. Pardon me. Sensitives, you know, we're so perceptive. Um, we really picked up on the fact that we were different. We knew that we were different as kids, right? Even if we couldn't have really explained it or verbalized it in any certain terms, we noticed what our sensitivity meant to others, how it affected others, and how that translated in terms of their treatment of us. And that is why so many sensitives really struggle with people-pleasing and masking at a young age. It can be the shadow side of sensitivity. I will say masking can be used positively. Um, We'll talk about that in another episode, but you know, for the sake of speaking towards this, um, that shadow side of of sensitivity, that ability to be a chameleon and shift to fulfill the expectations and needs of others at any given moment. And many of us do this so naturally that we don't even necessarily realize that we're doing it a lot of the time. And even when we do, can find it very challenging to stop doing it. (laughs) And that is definitely something that I resonate with. Um, I've come a long way. Like you've heard me say here before, I am a recovering people pleaser, but you know, that it is a survival instinct and a survival strategy that is very deeply programmed from my childhood that a lot of sensitives share as well. So, you know, I've already spoke um, in past episodes uh, about my own mental health journey, and I, I mentioned, um, I talked about that a little bit in that episode, um, but it's really common and so important to underline here again that masking our struggles and our differences feels like a biological imperative for our survival. Um, My mama also shared a memory with me that she had of tucking me in one night when I was around nine years old. And um, she would come in and tuck me in and tickle my back and maybe, you know, we'd have a little talk or she'd read me something. And one night she was tucking me in and I really vulnerably shared with her that I was really nervous about and scared about the future, that I was really worried about growing up. And at the time, my mom, of course, she just thought it was usual kid stuff, right? Growing up can feel scary. And so she was really encouraging and supportive and affirming and telling me things like, you'll be fine. You're 
you're a really smart, great kid. Like you can grow up to be whatever you want. I promise you'll figure it out as you get older, you know, that kind of stuff. And my response to her affirmation, her affirmations was, but what if I can't, what if I just can't do it? Can I always come back and live with you? And when my mom told me that story, I started to cry. Um, because I just felt, I felt that nine-year-old version of myself still within myself. Um, and that that fear is still very much present. And, and my mom shared with me and we both got a little teary, um, that it really breaks her heart because knowing all that she knows now in hindsight, she can see so clearly that even at nine years old, I was already masking so much and was hiding just how much I was really struggling. So I think this story is important for a couple of reasons. You know, one, there's, I think this is a, it's a very common experience for sensitive kids because we do know that we're different. And, and that difference when we don't have a framework to place it in that helps us to understand it and accept it for all of the positive things that it can bring to us. And we've only ever experienced, um, being different in ways that feel inhibitive or limiting or we're made fun, fun of for by our peers, etc., etc. You know, that, that can really form some core limiting beliefs that we carry around. And one of mine is I can't do it. And it comes up so, so much for me in, in my own healing, that limiting belief. I can't, it, it shows up in many different layers of myself and um, you know, I've healed through many layers of it and I have no doubt that I, I will heal through many more in the future. The other reason this story is so important is um, if you have a relationship with your primary caregivers or, you know, other adults who knew you as a kid um, and you have a relationship with them where you feel you can ask them questions about your childhood and what kind of kid you were and how they perceived you as a kid, it can actually be a really helpful piece of the puzzle in flipping the script for yourself and working with your inner child. It can help you just to confirm even further, yes, I'm a sensitive. Because even with all the work and confirmation that I have for myself around this, I can still find myself doubting my own experience. You know, also, um, I know I've shared this in the past, but because of my own traumatic experiences in childhood and my own upbringing, I have huge gaps in my memory. Um, I, I was completely dissociated for a lot of my childhood because that was my, um, survive. That was my go-to survival strategy and how my nervous system was wired. And so I, I dissociated a lot of the time and um, I don't have a ton of memories to, to help me necessarily confirm. I have some for sure, but it's been really supportive for me to be able to go back and ask um, like my grandmother and my, my parents for, for their recollections as well. So 
um, you know, if, if you have a relationship with people who as adults knew you as a kid, um, or you feel comfortable having those, having that ask with them, um, I, I invite you to do that because I think it'll be really supportive for you. Um, one of the things that, um, my parents have shared that is from a, a really early age, I would run from the room at the slightest hints of violence or aggression on TV. And that was a thing. Um, and like Bambi was just so incredibly devastating <laughs> to me. And, um, while I may have memories from my childhood where I remember what it felt like to be a kid, I've also found that as a sensitive, I can really connect with and relate to my younger self with so much compassion when I'm, when I'm hearing the stories told to me now about my kid's self from other family members, kind of feeling in between the lines as we do as sensitives. And, and so it helps me to reconnect to what I internalized as a child and step back into the work of reparenting myself, feeling more connected and resourced. I do talk in more depth about reparenting in my Heal Your Inner Child Masterclass, which is coming up again in June, so stay tuned for that. Um, because reparenting is a vital part of inner child work. It's so important to remember that when we're stepping into doing this work, you know, it's so important to remember that it's not predicated on laying blame or criticizing your parents. At its core, reparenting is kind of displacing the laws of space and time and showing up for your inner child in exactly the ways they needed to be supported, but never were. Psychologist and psychotherapist Elaine N. Aaron, um, Dr. Elaine Aaron, I've talked about her before, who's the author of The Highly Sensitive Person, talks about reparenting a lot in her book. And one helpful perspective she offers up is thinking about your sensitive child self as gifted. You know, we've come a long way in understanding how to support the development of quote unquote gifted children. And because our culture values the gifted label, it has less stigma than the label of sensitive. Um, and this, this can be really supportive in flipping the script for yourself as you're, as you're reparenting. So this is a list of her recommendations for reparenting your gifted self. Number one, appreciate yourself for being, not doing. And I know I talk about this a lot, but in our society, it can feel especially challenging to do this because productivity is so highly valued. And, and I've talked about this in, um, in conjunction with and in, in connection with needing more rest than other people as sensitives. Um, so yeah, appreciating yourself for, for being rather than doing number two, praise yourself for taking risks and learning something new rather than your successes. It will help you to cope with failure. Number three, try not to constantly compare yourself with others. It invites excessive competition. 
And you know, this one, it feels also incredibly important because again, we're different, right? Like we're 20% of the population. So when comparing ourselves to the 80% of others, um, whose traits may be more overtly valued by our culture, when we're consistently making those comparisons with other people, often what happens is we find ourselves wanting in those comparisons and it can really negatively affect our self-worth. Number four, give yourself opportunities to interact with other gifted people. Um, This is so cool in a number of ways. Um, I love this one. One, it helps to normalize your experience. If you're not the only alien and you have a a little group of other aliens with you, it helps you to feel more seen and heard and accepted. And when, um, you know, in, in a group of other sensitives, you can start to, to get a sense of how amazing you are because you share these traits and you start to benefit from all the amazing ways that a sensitive is going to show up in a group of people. And it can help affirm for you how those traits are really incredibly valuable to your own family, to your own friends, to your own community. So um, yeah, interacting with other gifted people is, is a really special and important thing to do. Don't, number five, don't over schedule yourself. Allow yourself time to think and to daydream. Um, we can be as, as sensitives, sometimes we're really overwhelmed. Like that overstimulation will happen if it feels like we have too many things that we have to do. And that can push us over the edge into a state of just being completely overwhelmed. And, um, you know, creating space to think and to daydream as sensitives are really creative and folks, you know, higher on that scale who are empaths are also super plugged in to, to energy and, and the spiritual realm. And it's in that space that we're able to, to really tap into our creativity, that we're able to channel, that we're able to hear messages from, uh, from spirit, from source, from higher self. So it's so important not to just, you know, get too stuck in the the overscheduling. And this, of course, it it ties back to number one on the list, which is really appreciating yourself for being, not doing. Number six, keep your expectations realistic. This is one that I think I probably struggle with the most. Um, I have, it's like, the programming and of, of being productive, being so highly valued. And, um, you know, these are, these are the ways you get rewarded. These are the ways you get shown love. This is the way you, you're affirmed that, that you're a good girl. Um, it, it was very much sort of always doing, always being productive. And I would set goals for myself based on what other people were capable of doing. And I still do that. <laughs> you know, with all the work I've done, so I want to just normalize that for you if this is something you experience. 
where I'm like, I'll start my day. <laughs> I have a list of like a million things and maybe I get two things done and maybe I did those things incredibly well and you know, I could be celebrating, but because my expectation was that I was going to get 20 things done, the two things that I got done that needed to happen and that I did really beautifully feel less significant. It diminishes their importance and that I'm always in a state of not enough, right? That I'm not doing enough. And that's incredibly demotivating because then I'm less motivated to show up to do anything because it feels like it's never enough. No matter what I do, it's never enough. So keeping expectations realistic and being really honest with myself, um, and some of that work comes through you know, learning more and being more aware about what it is to be a sensitive and how that shows up and, and accepting and loving myself for those things and um, really supporting myself and having realistic expectations based on what are my energy reserves? What are the tasks of the day asking me to do? And um, having having a more grounded understanding of the truth of that, rather than you know some fictionalized way over overkill version of it. Number seven, do not hide your abilities. This is so important on so many levels. Um, if we want to talk about healing your solar plexus in your throat chakra this is definitely connected to that um it is so empowering this is a part of claiming your sensitivity as a superpower this is also positively reinforced by the external world because as we show up more empowered in our gifts and abilities we are more prone to being praised admired affirmed by the people in our lives that's not why we're doing it but it's a really nice side effect. It's a really nice side benefit because that gives us that positive feedback. And we need as many positive feedback loops as possible to help us learn to really love and accept ourselves as, as sensitives and claim that sensitivity as the superpower that it really can be. Um, number eight, be your own advocate. Support your right to be yourself. I think I really first started to get a handle on this in college once I went through uh, some of that testing and found out that um, I have a working memory disorder and I have ADHD and I started to learn how to advocate for myself with my college professors and needing things like extra time to take tests and um, you know in the beginning I was so deeply embarrassed and ashamed deeply embarrassed and ashamed I felt like there was something wrong with me like who am I to ask for these special dispensations um but the more I did and the, the more confident and capable I became of doing that and the more I saw the results of that and that when I got what I needed it really supported me to be the best version and the best student version of myself it made it easier to accept and receive the, the support that I needed and, and to get my needs met. This advocacy, um, I would have never guessed it, but it also really helped in my journey with chronic illness. Um, learning how to really advocate for myself with my doctors, um, you know, so I wasn't just going to take at face value a traditional doctor who, you know, doesn't believe in the power of acupuncture 
um, or who, you know, wants to put me on a million prescriptions. And for me, that's not what I wanted to do for myself and not, not what I believed was going to make me heal. Um, that I was able to really advocate for myself. And ultimately, if there was too much pushback, realize, well, hey, this probably isn't an aligned fit. Maybe I should find a different doctor. Um, and so, you know, I can see in other spheres of my life how valuable this has been. Um, and I'm, I'm working more and more now as an empath and HSP to, to be my own advocate. Um, I think the most recent example, I should actually, my cousin kind of trailblazed on this for me. Um, we're having a conversation, my family, we're uh, taking a family vacation to the Grand Canyon next spring, which I'm so excited about. And we're staying at the Super Ritzy Hotel, but we've, we're have we staying in one room together, and then there's this other room, and I don't know, there, there was a question of who was going to stay in the the broom closet twin bed bedroom and and who are the people that were going to stay in like the grand suite and I was kind of quietly raising my hand like can I like <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to survive our family vacation if I have to sleep in a room with my parents and my aunt all of whom snore <laughs> and are just very very loud um uh and expansive extrovert kind of people and uh and my cousin kind of piped up across the table and she was like, yeah, doesn't, doesn't Laura really need a lot more alone time just to like make it through the day than, than the rest of y'all do? And when I heard her say that, it reminded me like, yeah, you can advocate for yourself. You can remind the people in your lives who don't think about it because it's not their reality, um, you know, that this is something that, that time alone, whether, you know, whether it's going on walks by myself in the morning, right? And just really carving out those boundaries of what it is that I need in order to to make it through. Um, just advocating for for what it is I need um, and you know the right to be myself. Be your own advocate. Number nine, accept it when you have narrow interests. Accept it when you have broad interests. Um, I, I'm not really going to expound on this one. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're a highly sensitive person and you haven't read Dr. Elaine Aaron's book, the highly sensitive person, then I highly recommend that you do. Not all of it is going to land a hundred percent with you because again, the layers of nuance in being an HSP are, um, are profound. But for me, certain parts of it have felt really eerie in their accurate portrayal of experiences that that I had that made me feel like an alien or totally alone. Um, and to read it and, and realize I'm not the only one. And it, it reaffirms, yes, I, I am a highly sensitive person. And it's so hugely beneficial in the reprogramming and flipping the script because it supports you in both accepting and loving your trait of sensitivity. You know, if you know you're an empath or suspect you might be a highly sensitive person, then I recommend you take Dr. Elaine Aaron's self-test at hspperson.com slash test slash highly dash sensitive dash test, which I will also link in today's show notes. Um, because this awareness can make a huge difference in the ways that you choose to work with yourself and can shed so much light on 
how you became you. And the more you understand the how and why of you, of your past experience, and the the way those past experiences shaped you, the more compassion, acceptance, and love you are able to meet yourself with. And this is healing. This is coming back home to yourself. And this will help you to see your sensitivity in new light and claim it as the superpower that it can be. And as always, I would love to close out today's episode with a reminder that you're doing the best you can where you're at with what you've got. And I love you.